chapter 9 will be in verses 28 to 36 for this year, because starting next week, we will go into an Advent series. And it's, again, the Holy Spirit is amazing to me how He lines these things up. I didn't do this, but we actually arrived today at really the climax of the first nine chapters. It's remarkable how this is lined up, so it's great. We get to conclude on a climax. And then next week, we'll, uh, we'll do our Advent series, which we love to do every year to just uh, bring our hearts and minds back to the coming, the advent of Jesus Christ in this world and how amazing it is, and we celebrate that every year. So read with me. I'm going to begin in verse 28 of chapter 9. I'm going to read the passage. I'm going to pray one more time this morning because I think it would be good to ask the Holy Spirit to be with us once again as we go into the Word. Beginning in verse 26, Luke, Dr. Luke, the journalist, the historian, wrote these words. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Jesus said, Peter said, pardon me, to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah." not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me, would you? Father, Father, what a momentous day this was and is. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would guide my words, that you would use these words, that you would open all of our minds and all of our hearts to the truth of what happened on this amazing day in history that Luke records for us. Father, I pray that we would be encouraged by these words. I pray that our faith would be strengthened. I pray that as we hear the exposition of this, the uh, unfolding, unpacking of these words, and as we contemplate this together, Lord, I pray we would truly be transformed and encouraged and blessed. And I pray these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. So many of you uh, know there's a particular writer in history that I like to quote quite often. Um, his name formerly is Clive Staples Lewis, who, of course, was a British um, writer and lay theologian. Um, he held academic positions in English literature at both Cambridge and Oxford universities in um, Britain. Uh, this past week, uh, many who really uh, admired this man and read most of his literature, whether it was, was his Christian apologetics or his Chronicles of Narnia and these type of things, these beautiful fantasies that he uh, wrote and turned into movies, 
uh, were turned into movies. Uh, this past week would have been hi- hi- basically 55 years since he passed away. And so he, he's kind of contemporary. He's not, I mean, he's gone, but he's really within this uh, the century just prior, prior, prior to the one we're in. Uh, most of you know him, of course, shortened name, C.S. Lewis. And um, we know, mo- many of you know that he, of course, was really good friends with another amazing professor and author and writer at that time, a contemporary of his whose name was J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings. Their story is amazing because... As they were professors uh, together um, in Cambridge and Oxford, in Oxford at the time, they started a little group that got together called the Inklings, and they would get together and they would, they would talk about literature and, and they would smoke pipes, right? And I think they actually imbibed a little bit. And, and, and they were really, really, really engaging with one another. And at that time, early 30s, uh, C.S. Lewis was an atheist, He had grown up in a Christian surrounding, but he'd lost his faith, walked away from his faith, no longer believed there was a God. And yet through a couple of things, the testimony of his Christian friend, J.R.R. Tolkien, and one other element brought him back to faith in a remarkable way. And so, as I said, besides the influence of his friend, it was actually his study of the Bible. J.R.R. Tolkien um, basically challenged him and said, listen, you're you're a professor, you understand English, you specifically understand medieval uh, and, and also Renaissance literature. You're an expert in these things. Read the Gospels. It's been a long time. Read the Gospels. And as he read the Gospels, he was shocked and amazed. What he found was, as he was reading the Gospels, is he realized that he's reading documents that sounded like, were written like they were actually journalistic news, reporting in a narrative style. This was very unusual because he knew, as a professor, that this kind of writing didn't happen for centuries after the time that the Gospels were written. And so from that perspective, he's going, wait a second. <laughs> this, is, this is not fantasy. This is not, um, uh, you know, uh, fiction. I know what that looks like. I'm a writer of it. And as he continued to go through the Gospels and reading them and seeing particularly in the Gospel of Luke, as we'll see today, time stamping, <laughs> date stamping, news reporting, journalistic writing of a narrative he all of a sudden found Jesus again. He believed. This is an intelligent man, well-educated man, who had come from an atheistic perspective. Our opening verse today is one of those verses that gave him a clue to this. And I think it's important, especially as we look at this rather, rather remarkable text. It's easy for us as Christians. We read this text, and of course, Jesus goes up a mountain, Moses and Elijah are there, you know, two dead guys are there, and they're talking, right? And Peter, John, and James are there. We know this story. It's, of course, it's very simple. No, it's not. (laughs) Is it believable? Starts in verse 28 with these words. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. So th- this verse in itself was one of those where C.S. Lewis looked at it and goes, what, what? I mean, the previous sayings was what we saw last week, right? That amazing connected passage where Jesus is making it clear to his disciples who he is. 
And, and, and he doesn't timestamp that. He's, in that, when he begins, he goes, a little while later, at some other time. But now he says, approximately eight days later. C.S. Lewis saw that and said, that, that's not normal in that day for writings. It's remarkable. And we've known this from day one in the opening of this gospel. Luke is a former Greek pagan doctor who came to faith in Jesus Christ, we believe, through the writings, uh, the ministry, pardon me, of the Apostle Paul and his writings probably. Um, but he was a skeptic. He, he didn't believe. And he opens his gospel saying to his good friend Theophilus, I'm writing this. I'm preparing this orderly account, having interviewed all the eyewitnesses because I wasn't there personally, so that you, Theophilus, would have certainty about who Jesus is and about your faith. That's his purpose for writing these things. And so with this verse, Dr. Luke arrives at really the climax of the first nine chapters. We've been noting for some time now how the question has been building really for the last two or three chapters, the constant question of all of the people, the crowds and and Herod and everyone else is, who is this guy? Who is this man that even the wind and the rain and, and the waters listen to him and respond to him? Who is it that can speak like this about the kingdom of God and, and with such great wisdom. Who is this man? Who is he? And so we've been given clear evidence, of course, especially in the last couple of weeks, of exactly who he is. He is God in the flesh. He's making it very clear. And last Sunday we heard Jesus personalize the question to his disciples, looking them in the eye and asking them the question that all of us must answer at some point in time in our lives. Every human must answer who do you say that I am? Peter, of course, gets it right. You are the Christ of God, declared vocally by one of his followers. That's important. But then Jesus at that point goes on and and amplifies for them the understanding of who he is. They don't know this yet, but they need to know. And he goes on and says, listen, guys, here's what's going to happen. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day rise from the dead. First time in Luke's gospel that Jesus prophesies, predicts what's going to happen in approximately 12 months. He's going to suffer be persecuted. I mean, the Old Testament prophesied about that all the time, right? And so he's prophesying, and he's saying, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. This is the Savior. This is the Jesus, the Messiah that they need to believe in. So away from the crowds and to his most loyal disciples, Jesus reveals more details of who he truly is. So today, Luke lets us know that it's about eight days after these sayings, after these things. And as I said, this is what struck C.S. Lewis, and I think should strike you and I as well. This is detail. This is specific detail. And again, I think it's really important because we're going into an amazing story that is not just a detail. It's a climax of something that truly happened, and not just metaphorically, it's historical detail, and, and it should be. Luke wasn't there that day, as I said, but he's, he's interviewed the eyewitnesses, and including these three men who go up on the mountain with Jesus. He's interviewed them, and he's simply recording what he hears. It's fantastic what he's recording, but he's simply doing that. He's recording what he hears. And what he hears is that Jesus took three men with him up the mountain 
to pray. Peter, James, and John. And so for the first time also, we see Jesus inviting out his inner circle of the 12 who will become pillars of the early church. Pastors, apostles, and leaders in the church. So what we see here is that he takes them up on this mountain to pray, but also, obviously, Jesus Jesus has a clue of what's going to happen, one would think. And so he takes them up there to also, we must see this morning, to be witnesses of one of the most remarkable events in history. I mean, we we highlight, I read some commentator uh, this week who said, you know, it's amazing how we, we celebrate the birth of Jesus, obviously. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus at Easter, obviously. And he was like, why don't we celebrate this? He was a theologian, and he said, because this is so remarkable and so important to who Jesus is and to our salvation and what it all means. And so Jesus takes the three men up to a mountain to pray, and then we read these words. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So these verses are why um, most of your Bibles will have a title. Now, it's not in the original manuscripts, but most of your Bibles will have a title in there called the Transfiguration, right? This is what normally it's called. I'm actually titling this sermon. If you've got sermon notes here this morning, um, it's really, uh, it's re- I'm titling it The Glory of the Lord because that's what it is. But it is the Transfiguration. Um, here, the Greek word heteros is translated altered, but its literal meaning would be really more difficult to translate in our English today. It would be something more like otherworldly, something we've never seen before, altered. His clothing, we read, was dazzling white, which would again be amplified in the Greek to mean to to flash out like lightning, blinding. It was so bright, his clothing. Then two men appear, Moses and Elijah. We read in their glory... And they're having a conversation with Jesus. The very sleepy Peter and uh, other apostles are witnessing, as we'll read. They're having this conversation with Jesus about his departure, which will take place soon, about what he was to accomplish in Jerusalem. So we read that, right? You see what's going on here? It's pretty simple. There are multiple amazing things happening here, really, that tell us much, much, about Jesus, and certainly much about what this means for you and I here today. So first, let's do this. Let's focus on this. There are two men, right? There are two men with Jesus. I really hope you can see that. And I'm not trying to be silly, but these two men that are here with Jesus are Moses and Elijah. (laughs) Breathing, standing there, alive. Full stop. You've got to think about this this morning. Now, I'm sure many of you, especially if you've talked with me, you'll know there are things that I worry about from time to time. Um, but the, but there, there's something in our day and age that is under serious attack. I, I, I've noticed in my own life, um, since I became a Christian at 23 years of age, which is 
oh dear, I'm going to say it out loud, 40 years ago. It's, you know, it's a while ago, right? But I've seen it going on, and I know that from history and writings, it's really been going on for about two, 300 years, and that is there is an ongoing attack on the Bible, an ongoing attack on two things about the Bible that are well-established, not just recently, but over 2,000 and approximately 18 years of study of theologians, and they're called the inerrancy and the infallibility of the Bible. These are under serious attack even more so in our day. Wayne Grudem, uh, who's a a theologian and an author, he wrote a systematic theology. He gives a very succinct definition of the term inerrancy. You know, it's a big theological term, and some of you are going, what are we doing here? I'll explain. It's important. His definition in systematic theology of inerrancy would be this. The inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Simply put, everything the Bible states is true. So this means that when what we affirm in this definition is that a perfect God, listen, moved human authors, this is his expansion actually in his commentary, his book, Systematic Theology, is that a perfect God moved human authors by his spirit to perfectly transcribe what he, God, wanted to communicate. I'm human, just like the rest of you here. That, that's sometimes hard to understand and believe. These are just, it's Peter, for goodness sakes. <laughs> you know, he doesn't always get it right, and he's one of the, yes, one of those guys. Infallible simply means this incapable of error, impossible to be wrong. So putting the two together, we understand that the Bible is absolutely trustworthy and reliable, cover to cover, period. This is really not a new attack. It's really been going on since the Enlightenment, or so it's called, since the early 1600s. And it's, it's... it's sad, really, because what's happening... I mean, I remember being this questioning 20-something-year-old as I was just coming to faith in Christ, and I was raised in the Catholic Church, and I had lots of questions, some things that I didn't agree with, that I wasn't sure about, so I was quite a questioning young man. And in many of those cases, my questioning led to me to become even more hardened about the church and about faith and about God and certainly about the Bible. And so what I noticed is, is that in my lifetime anyway, it seems like every generation that comes along thinks we know better, right? Like in our 20s and 30s, it feels like we know better, right? And we especially know better than a few different people in different categories. Our parents, for sure, right? Like for definitely our parents, right? Grandparents, forget it, you know? But, but of course, any theologian, author who's dead or soon to be dead, you know? In other words, over a certain age, I've likened it to this. It, it, it boils down to this. It boils down to youthful pride and arrogance, does it not? That we have this type of thought, and we don't put our faith and trust in people who've gone before us. I remember taking a Believer's Church Tradition course in seminary, one of the best courses I ever took. It was two semesters of taking this course. Part one, part two was awesome. You study the church from the, the foundation of the church in Acts 2 all the way through uh, the 
the early period of Constantine all the way through to the Reformation, all the way through to today. And one of the things you study is all the various tree branches of theologians that came along, and, and the church is trying to figure out all the theology and the background of the Bible and all these things. And, and some of these go down certain rabbit trails, and after a little while, it's found out that that person is going down that rabbit trail is actually going down the trail of heresy. And so people go, okay, stop that. <laughs> Let's go back here. And it just... And so one of the phrases that our professor said at the time, he said, gentlemen, when you preach in your churches, when you graduate from seminary, please remember this, you're standing on the shoulders of people who have gone before you. Respect what they're teaching you. And so listen, I highlight this here today because of this reason, because of this passage we're in. I highlight this because as you're going to see, I'm going to quote something shortly that Um, There are lots of people who will read this passage and go, that's unbelievable. It sounds nice. It sounds amazing. Luke probably made it up, or the apostles made it up and put it in there just to amplify who Jesus was. Because come on, there are two guys who are dead who are there. They're talking to Jesus. And Jesus has changed. His whole visage has changed. And they're talking about an event that's coming up in the future. Good story. But can we believe it? Well, let's go back to our text for today and focus again on these two men. They are Moses and Elijah. They have names. They're recorded here. And we read that they appear in glory. This will get amplified as we come to our conclusion. So to begin then, let's deal with these two men and what glory means. Months ago, I borrowed a phrase um, for one of our sermons uh, uh, in Luke, and I borrowed a phrase uh, regarding another passage, and I, call it, I called it proof of life after death. And, and here we have it again, right? Here we have it again in this passage. Two men whom we know historically are dead for a few centuries, you know, hundreds of years. These guys are gone, buried, dead. Well, Elijah was kind of translated, wasn't he? It was a little bit of a different departure, but they're gone. They're no longer living. But now they reappeared. They've died, and now they, listen, look at this, by name have reappeared on earth. So what does this tell us? I think there are four things, many, but four key things that it tells us about what we're seeing here today, and it's important. First, there is life after death. Amen? It's not just a fantasy. It's not just a hope. It doesn't, I, don't, I don't believe that just to make me feel good. There's going to come a day where every one of us is going to get to that point where our death is imminent, if it's not a, a sudden a horrible accident or something. But we're going to know that our death is Im- imminent. And I'll tell you what, this hope, this faith, it's going to be tested. It's going to be tested, most certainly. But number one, this is telling us there is life after death. There are witnesses here. There are two men, Moses and Elijah. There is also this. There is life after death with God. How do we know that? Glory. 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 Thirdly, we retain our personal identities. You see that? There's still Moses and there's still Elijah. They're walking around in heaven going, hey, Moses, how's it going? How's it going? We found the promised land. Isn't it great to be here? It's awesome. They have personal identities. And fourthly, these are two key men in the history of God's story. 
That's why they're here. It's beautiful. They represent two very important phases in the story of God, in the history of God, which is his story, which is why we call it history. And and they fall under the, the categories of the law and the prophets. And here they are. That should signal right away, this is an incredibly important event. Because Jesus is actually on this mountaintop with two men. If there were a hall of fame in in Christianity, these guys would be first ballots, right? Like they'd be in right away. Jesus we don't know about yet, right? Or we do now today, but they may not have in that day. So Moses, of course, is the man God chose. For those of you who know your Sunday school, your, you know, your, your, your pastor, your Bibles, and those of you who don't, we'll give you a little bit of background on that. He was the one who led his people out of captivity and to the promised land, not into it, but he was that guy in the Old Testament. Now, interestingly, Wikipedia, the fountain of knowledge and truth, opens with these words on Moses. Wikipedia says, Moses was a prophet in the Abrahamic religions, which means Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, according to their holy books. However, scholarly consensus sees Moses as a legendary figure and not a historical person. All right, let's just close the book and have some coffee and go home, right? What's the point? People get their theology from Wikipedia. You know that, right? Some people. So not only does this story we're reading today seem unbelievable, well, no wonder, according to Wikipedia, Moses isn't real. Never happened. It's sad, isn't it? It's sad. So this Moses is the man, however, who did really live, and God chose him to lead his people through a very historical period we know as something called the Exodus, right? He led his people out of captivity in the Exodus. It was remarkable. It was Moses who was led up by God to Mount Sinai, another mountain, right, to receive the Ten Commandments. Most of us, again, know that from Sunday school or a reading of our Bibles. So now we also know this about Moses in the Exodus period. Very important. God was present with them every day, was he not? For how many years? You can speak out loud, you mostly Baptists. 40 years. There you go, all right? 40 years. Every day. Now, how was he present with them? Oh, just in their hearts, you know. And we, ethereally, he was there. He was around. No. No, actually, in a much more dramatic way. His presence was, presence was in the form of what we call a glory cloud. We call it that. The Bible doesn't call it that at any point, but we call it that today. And it's not a bad thing to call it. Or his... Shekinah glory is what we call it. But the book of Exodus tells us a few keys about this cloud, and they are these. In Exodus 13, verse 21, I believe is on screen. There it is. And the Lord went before them daily, really is that word, by day, in a pillar of cloud. So it's like a pillar. It's a a cloud formed up, and it's like a pillar. It's like round, and it's going up. It could have been square, but it's going up but it's following and it's with them and he leads them actually their way. And by night, look at this, in a pillar of fire to give them light that they may travel by day and by night. Now, later in Exodus, we read about Moses ascending Mount Sinai, right? 
and, and a second time to, to get a, a new copy of the Ten Commandments because the first copy that he got, he comes down the mountain and he just he dashes them on the rocks. He throws them on the rocks because he's so disgusted with his people because they've been worshiping idols. A golden calf? Really? Really? And so he goes back up a second time. And before he does that, actually, he prayed every day after that event in something called a tent of meeting. And the pillar cloud would come just outside the tent and stay there and just be outside the tent. One day, Moses literally plays God, prays, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. I need something in order to be able to lead these people. And so God encourages him to come back up Mount Sinai, and as he's chiseling out of the stone, God's glory does come near him, doesn't it? But God's God himself actually prevents Moses from clearly seeing him in the cleft of the rock, has his hand over so he can't quite see who God is, but as God has gone past him, he allows Moses to see his, face, his back, right? It's a great story. It's true. It happened. And then, of course, we also know that when Moses comes down from the mountain, after 40 days on the mountain working on the stones and the Ten Commandments, when he comes down the mountain, he doesn't realize it, but the people are like, his face is gleaming. His face is radiating the glory of God. And so after the people of Israel complete the Exodus and for the rest of the Old Testament... We, we find that the glory of God exists or resides in two places primarily. First, in the tabernacle, which is built to his, God's exacting standards, a holy place where his glory, his presence would be, but then also later in the temple. And unfortunately, by the time of the arrival of the prophet Ezekiel, the people are back to their same old, same old, worshiping idols in the temple And eventually, the glory of God leaves the people of Israel for good. It's tragic. It's tragic. I mean, can you imagine being in that time in history and the glory of God is present and and He's providing for you every day, food from heaven, bread from heaven every day. He's with you. He's he's given you His law and His prophets and you've got everything you need. But no, you know what? These these golden calves, these other idols, these riches of the world, they're, they're so much better. He's gone. Silent until. It's remarkable. Until the advent, right? Luke chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 say this. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. The glory is back. It is returned. You know, you know, you and I, we read these phrases at Christmas, right? The glory of the Lord, John around them, right? It's great. We sing songs like that, right? It's amazing. Do we understand what's going on here? This is the first time that the glory of the Lord has reappeared on earth, and it is at the advent of the birth of Jesus Christ. So once again, 
the, Lord, the glory of the Lord appears to these shepherds announcing the arrival in the city of David of a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That then brings us back to today. Things go on in the life of Jesus, but it brings us today. After all the questions about who Jesus is and all the displays of his power, and finally P- Peter's confession, you are the Christ of God, on this day in history, the glory of God appears on another mountain. You cannot make this stuff up. Forty different authors over a period of 1,500 years. And the story is consistently, consistently factual and true. It's marvelous. So back to our text again. And once again, we've got these three disciples, right? Got Peter, John, and James. We've, We've got three other men, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, Jesus' face is completely altered. His clothing is dazzling white. And what we see here is not, listen, it's not the reflection of the glory of God that was coming off of Moses' face. This is emanating from Jesus Christ. Not only is his face altered, not in the same way as Moses, but his clothing is dazzling white because the glory of God is emanating directly from him and through the clothing. That's the picture. That is what is being presented to us today here. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful picture. So then we read, listen, we read that they're having this conversation about, I love this, about his departure. Like, that's, that's our English word, right? It's great. But they're, they're, they're having a conversation. Again, just imagine, hey, Jesus, so listen, uh, it's been a while, you know, just been a while. You know, we, you were in heaven. We've been there for a few, few centuries, you know, and we've had conversations before, and, 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 and this is great. So let's, 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 let's have a little conversation about, so, you, you know, um, what's going to happen? It's, uh, uh, are you ready for this? Because, like, you know, that's about 10, 12 months. It's going to happen. You know that. We know that. And think about this. What's going on here is that these men know. Jesus knows. They're having a, a conversation about his departure, which will happen in Jerusalem in about 10 to 12 months when he is crucified, he dies, he's buried, he resurrects from the dead, and then he ascends in his what body? Glorified body. That's what they're talking about. If you've ever had any doubts about the sovereignty and providence of God and his foreknowledge of all events, this should eliminate that. Amen? another proof after life, but also a proof of God's sovereignty that we're seeing here today. They know what's going on, and they're having this conversation. And, and I've got to ask, why are they having this conversation? Is it, is it just the three buddies, like having a conversation that they had before the foundation of the world, that this is what's going to happen, and they're just, you know, getting ready for it and getting excited about it? Is that the reason? Is that the only reason? Clearly not. Peter, John, and James needed to see this and hear this. And so do you, and so do I. Which is why the Holy Spirit prompted Luke to get this information and to write it down. And so they are eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses. I don't know about you. I, 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 you've heard me say this kind of things before. I just can't imagine being there. Look, like, Lord, you know, back to the future. Can you take me back in a time machine? I just would like to be there and see it for myself. How remarkable would that be? Well, in our mind's eye, and certainly in the spirit, we can see this. Amen? We can see this. So as we read next, Peter isn't 
he's not quite sure what to make of all of this. And that might be what you and I would be thinking if we were there. And then we read this. And as the men... There we are. No, the guys... Mm -hmm. And as the men were parting... There we go. From him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, not knowing what he said, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Before we unpack that specifically, I should mention to you, um, which I didn't because we skipped over this verse, the previous one, but that word in the Greek, go figure for departure, what do you think it means? The literal Greek word is exodus. It is the exodus of Jesus. The final exodus that completes the story. So first we see one of my favorite guys here, Peter. I've always said to you, like, if I have to identify personally, self-identify with some apostle, it's Peter. You know, like, I'm really quick sometimes to go, yeah, I know what I'm talking about. I'm better at that at my age today. But he's up to his usual tricks here, I think. He's letting his lips move and words are coming into his mouth before his brain is fully engaged. But he's got a good heart. He means well, right? He's seeing the situation. He's a good Jewish boy. He's grown up knowing about the tabernacle. And he's looking at Moses and Elijah and Jesus in glory, and he's like, okay, okay so, so a good thing, wouldn't it be a good thing, Jesus, if what we were to do is, is we were to, you know, like create three tabernacles, three tents, same word, and, and, and then you guys can stay here because the, the glory of God is back, it's here, we should want to keep it here, right? <laughs> the remarkable thing about this text is, is that it, 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 it's, it's like this, it's like, of course, it says, not knowing what he said, <laughs> Ah, it's, Luke is just being kind, don't you think? I don't know what the eyewitnesses actually said to him, but, you know, Peter was one of them. He says, yeah, I was being a dummy. And, and, and he said it, right? But it's as he's speaking, the Father, the Father comes in a pillar of cloud, overshadows them, and they're afraid, very afraid. And then we read, a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. So this is a remarkable passage, really, this, these couple of verses here, because it, it shows us this, that I mean, these men were rightly afraid. The shepherds were afraid, right? Remember that? They were rightly afraid because one thing that they knew from the story that Moses knew from the story of the pillar of cloud was that no one would survive the glory of God full on. No one could survive that. So there was natural fear as this is overshadowing them. And then, of course, what we see is we see Peter and James and John being enveloped by this cloud, overshadowed was really what this is saying, but they're being enveloped by this cloud, and yet they don't die. Why? Because they're with the Shekinah glory. They're with the glory of God. They're with Jesus. And when all is said and done, and the voice from heaven declares that which is the Father saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. What God wants Peter and John and James and you and I to know is this. Yes, Moses and Elijah were there. 
but he's the one. He's the one. He's the one. He's the one who is present with them. So, friends, again, listen, I, I have to put this as an aside. Sadly, unfortunately, today, you, you can Google this. You can find this. There are, there are pastors, there are churches that actually talk about the glory of God, a cloud showing up in their services, right? In, in their church services only, not in every church service, but in their church service. That's happening today in our world where pastors and churches are claiming that, yeah, there's a puff of smoke over there appeared one time, and then this glory cloud came down with sprinkling gold dust, and it was, a, the, it was the glory cloud. It was the, this is nonsense. This is nonsense. This was a historical event recorded in the Word of God, and the reason why it's recorded is because we are to see that Jesus is the glory of God. It's found in Him alone. I love the last verse, which we'll leave with today, from the passage anyway. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything in those days of what they'd seen. Clearly, they repeated it afterwards. If you read the writings of Peter, John, and James, you will see that they do talk about this event in terms of it. But at that time, it was like, oh, this is a lot to process, one would think. How do you explain that to the other guys and ladies? Pretty impossible. So in conclusion, let me ask you this kind of answered it a bit already, but why do you think this event actually happens? Why? Is it important that it happens for for Moses and for Elijah and for Jesus and that this culmination of the glory of God, the return of the glory of God, the, the picture of the exodus, the departure exodus, all of that put together, is that important to them? Yes. But clearly the story is recorded and this event happens because it's most important for Peter and John and James and you and I, and Luke is recording it for his good friend Theophilus and for you and for I so that we would have certainty, certainty of who Jesus is. John, one of the men who was present on this day, he later records this in his gospel. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, in his gospel. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John also says that the, the things that Jesus did and the things that he said, all the books of the world would not hold them. But these are recorded, these events are recorded, so you will believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Chosen One. Not too long um, before this, actually, John also records an amazing occasion. Um, it's called the Feast of Tabernacles. Right? And the night before this particular feast that John records, uh, it was an amazing event because there were four very large candelabras in, in this Feast of Tabernacles, and they were filled with approximately 65 liters of oil each, and then they were lit on fly- fire so that they would illuminate the temple. The next morning, Jesus is there with his disciples and the candles have burnt out, no longer able to illuminate the temple. And he looks around the room and he says to the people, I am the light of the world. 
Whoever follows me will not be in darkness, but will have the light of life. So friends, listen, I believe today the Holy Spirit has revealed to all of us who have ears to hear who Jesus really is, who Jesus really is. He is the Shekinah glory. He is the pillar of cloud that was with them in the wilderness. He is the pillar of fire who was with them by night, lighting their path, a lamp unto their feet. Question for you today. Is he yours? Is he the light of your life? If he's not, you're in darkness. And the Holy Spirit is saying, come into the light and accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. Pray with me, would you?